Well, good morning. If you don't know who I am, I'm Bob Walderman. I'm uh, very happy to be here. After about 25 years, is the last time I was uh, preaching from the pulpit here. I thank Pastor Caleb for the opportunity. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 64 as we continue through Isaiah. Hear now the word of the Lord. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquity. But now, Lord, you are Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have been become, become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praise you, have been burned by fire, and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is a joy to gather once again as your body, as uh, we come to worship you. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would move up and down the aisles and in each individual heart. Help us, Lord, uh, to listen to your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, to put aside all distractions that our attention and our heart might be firmly fixed on what we're here to do today, and that is to worship you. So we pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would open our ears and our hearts uh, to the message that follows. And we'll give you great thanks for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before I actually get to chapter 64, I want to start with a story, which I believe will help us get into the right frame of mind to understand what, we're, what I'm about to say. This is a story of a plague within our society. I'm not talking about monkeypox. I'm not talking about COVID. I'm not talking about influenza. In this plague, 90% of the victims are women. It results in nearly 1,300 deaths and 2 million injuries every year in the United States alone. Every year, nearly 5 million suffer from it. And more than three women die every day from it. When I was in seminary, Bethel Seminary of the East, 
Their ministry model byline was head, heart, and hands. Head for theological knowledge, heart for devotional passion, hands uh, to help those in need. And it was one of the assignments of the hands for us to get involved in some social need to bring the light of Christ to the people. So I did things like serve at a soup kitchen, and I served for a while in an AIDS house. And uh, what, what really hooked me was when I signed up for the Speaker's Bureau for the Nassau County Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Yes, domestic violence is the plague I'm talking about. And during my training, I was shocked by both the statistics and the experiences shared by the women. A woman is beaten every nine seconds by an intimate partner. Although there are more women, there are seven times more animal shelters than shelters for abused women. What disturbed me even more was hearing how the church, churches, consistently failed to help these women and ended up victimizing the victim all over again by putting the fault back on them and asking things like, what did you do to make him so angry? And through some grotesque distortion of biblical headship, they would just send them home telling them to be more submissive. Domestic violence and abuse refers to a pattern of violent, physical, emotional, psychological, and coercive behavior exercised by an intimate partner or in a dating relationship to maintain control over someone else. Domestic violence spans all demographics, rich and poor, professionals and laborers, all races and all religions, even elders and pastors. And there is an established cycle in domestic violence. First, there is a trigger, an incident that triggers an angry and violent attack. Maybe you say a joke about your husband at a party. He laughs there, but when he gets home, he flies into a rage and spews a vitriolic litany of abuse upon you. Maybe he even gets uh, physical and slaps you or beats you for embarrassing him. Then the second stage comes, and it's the honeymoon stage. Here the husband attempts reconciliation. He asks for forgiveness, pledges it will never happen again. He lavishes gifts upon the woman. This is particularly difficult for Christian women who have been taught to forgive not seven, but 77 times. And then a tense calm appears. And the third is the gathering storm. Having been accepted back, tensions rise again. The wife walks on eggshells. Uh, her spirit is uneasy and not wanting to trigger her husband. She tries to submit to his demands. But it happens again. Without intervention, it will always happen again, even more frequently. If any of you are experiencing domestic violence or know someone who is, get help. It doesn't get better. Now briefly, I just want to look closer at that second phase because this is important for us, the honeymoon stage. This is a very difficult stage and one that requires great discernment. It is in this phase that the abuser often seeks to gaslight the abused. Maybe you're not familiar with the term gaslight. 
Gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which the abuser attempts to sow self-doubt and confusion in the victim's mind. Typically, gaslighters are seeking to gain power and control over the other person by distorting the reality and forcing them to question their own judgment and intuition. It's putting a positive spin on something to minimize one's fault and to maximize guilt, confusion, and self-doubt in another. The word became popular uh, due to the 1944 movie of the same name, Gaslight, starring Charles Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, and Joseph Cotton. In it, the husband, Boyer, tries to manipulate, blame, confuse, and sow self-doubt into his wife, Ingrid Bergman, making her think she has gone insane so he can steal from her. One means that he used was to secretly turn down the gaslight lamps in the house, and when she questioned their dimming, he denied that they were dimmed, and hence the movie name Gaslight. Both Boyer and Bergman were nominated for Oscars, and Bergman uh, won the uh, Best Actress Award. I understand, unless you're over 50, you probably have no idea who these people are, <laughs> but you can still get the movie. The primary focus in gaslighting is blame shifting. The abuser apologizes while blaming others, saying that if you acted differently, they wouldn't treat you like this, so it's really your fault. They point to outside factors to justify their behavior. I can't get ahead on my job because of you and the kids. They seek to minimize the abuse or deny it happened while accusing you of provoking them. The abuser may be saying all the right words in his so-called apology, but he's not really taking ultimate responsibility, but twisting and distorting the reality to his advantage. So after an incident of physical or verbal abuse, you might threaten to leave him. You may hear what sounds like the right words, but it's all couched in blame shifting. Look, dear, come on. Where is your sympathy? Don't you have any compassion for me anymore? You're my wife. Why do you cause me to do these things? Oh, that you would just forgive me and let's get back to normal. If we could work harder on our marriage, I, I know it can it'd be better than we imagined. I know we can, I can make you happy if you give me a chance. Things aren't so bad. I know my anger gets out of control sometimes. I know I can be a monster. But you haven't really heard me, and it, it, it would help if you just did a few of the things I asked. Listen, you are my wife. How long will you be angry? I can't take being without you. Why won't you forgive me? Why are you silent? Why do you want to leave? Why do you sit there and do nothing? Such an apology is classic gaslighting. The words sound right. The sentiment sounds correct but they are filled with duplicity. So let me close this section just by saying, there is never any justification for domestic violence. It is a sin against God's image in you. It is a sin against the God's design for marriage and husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. And it is a punishable crime. Now, with this mindset, let's turn to the scriptures. This short chapter, Isaiah 64, should probably not have been a chapter 
because it's right in the middle of a long thought that goes back to at least chapter 63, 15 and forward to uh, 65, 17. Calvin agrees with this. He writes, we see the absurdity of the division of this chapter. If taken in isolation, it precipitates the big question of whether the lament that we read is genuine or not. And this leads scholars in two different directions. The two directions are first, if taken in isolation, is to accept what is being said as a prayer of lament and genuine repentance. The words sound good. But if that is the case, it is very hard to reconcile God's answer in the next chapter as well as the other prophets speaking to the same people. At first blush, chapter 64 seems a sincere and almost beautiful lament, but to the careful reader, there are hints it is not. It does not seem to represent the heart, but rather a heart with a shallow repentance, if there's any repentance at all. But the second way to see this chapter is to approach it not in isolation, but as a part of a larger discourse. Viewed this way, we can, uh, this way uh, can, we can see that this could be a case of gaslighting and an attempt to change the reality of their situation by minimizing their responsibility and blaming God. Some, such as Old Testament professor Dr. John Oswald, say it is a straw man set up by the prophet to be demolished by God's answer in the next chapter. And just like with the abuser's so-called repentance, it can be hard to discern if what is being said is true or not. But I believe this is a case of gaslighting, not only because of some of what is said here in the larger context, but what follows in the next chapter. And in addition, we're going to look at Isaiah's uh, contemporaries, Hosea and Amos, who were addressing the same exact people to, to see what they have to say in evaluating what is said here. And then also in the lot, later prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who spoke to those who remained in Judea, we hear that nothing had changed. We should be remember that when it comes to prophets, few people liked or honored prophets. The Jewish scholar Abraham Herschel in his classic book, The Prophets, wrote, to be called a prophet is both a distinction and an affliction. Although it was the highest honor to be used as the very mouthpiece of God, declaring his word and promises filled with glorious hope for the people, it was no easy task. A major reason for this was that the prophet also had a message of judgment and had to say what people did not want to hear. By God's Spirit, the prophet could see the heart of the people and what they really thought. And when a prophet arrived, the few who remained faithful, the remnant, listened and obeyed. But they would suffer the tribulation of exile along with the ungodly nation. When the prophet arrived, we should not get the idea of Billy Graham filling Yankee Stadium. When the prophet arrived, what we should see, think about as the people in Manhattan rushing by that guy holding the sign, the end is near. Consider Jose's rejection. 
In chapter 9 there, it reads, The prophet is considered a fool. The inspired man is viewed as a madman. Animosity rages against him in the land of his God. Jeremiah was not popular either. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him, saying, You shall die! Imagine that reaction to one of your sermons. The general attitude towards the prophets was probably much closer to that expressed by King Ahab against the prophet Micaiah. I hate him. He never prophesies as good concerning me, but evil. And even Isaiah. If we go back, we look uh, back in chapter 30. For they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us know, hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And Isaiah's message of judgment probably led to his death, traditionally recognized as being sawn in two. Indeed, to be called a prophet is both a distinction and an affliction. And together, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, they're speaking to the same people of the northern kingdom. But they also include the southern kingdom of Judah. They were alive during the Assyrian conquest and exile. And Isaiah does at times speak prophetically about the coming Babylonian conquest a hundred years in the future. Isaiah was about to speak fine-sounding words from the exiles but words that flow from insincere motives. It's been noted, it isn't unusual for the accused in a trial to express regret and remorse for what they've done and to ask for another chance. That's just what Israel did. But regret and remorse are not repentance. They are self-centered. I regret I was caught I regret I'm in prison. I regret I'm in exile. But there is no mention of repenting for my actions or behavior or a plea for forgiveness. Spurgeon wrote, If I hate sin because of the punishment, I have not repented of my sin. I merely regret that God is just. So chapter 64 should not be taken into isolation. So I'm going to answer what is said here in the chapter by what the other prophets are saying about the same thing they say. As one commentator noted, God anticipated their hypocritical subterfuge and expressed not only their duplicity, but the sinful way they had treated the Lord. I want to start by looking back briefly at chapter 63. If you remember, the people of the northern tribe of Israel had been... Uh, conquered, taken into captivity. This was the day of vengeance the pastor spoke about last week. We find the people asking God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Verse 15, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Here's the complaint. God is removed from his people and has withheld his zeal and might. 
He could act, but he won't. Notice they're pointing the finger at God. Where are you? Then in verse 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Here's classic gaslighting. Blame shifting. It's as if they were saying, hey, we know we are bad, but you made us this way. You let it all happen. Ultimately, it's your fault. And the blame shifting continues into chapter 64. In the first five, five verses, the people are asking God that God would step into their situation and do something spectacular. That he would unleash his awesome might upon the heathens and strike fear and dread in them that they would know his name. Fine-sounding words. In verse 1, the imagery is of Mount Sinai of old when God gave the tablets to Moses in Exodus 19, 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the same can be said about uh, the second part, about boiling water. However, it might also be a reference to Elijah and his contest with the prophets of Baal. When the prophets of Baal failed, remember the story, Elijah built an altar with wood and he poured water on it three times. And then in 1 Kings 18, 38, we read, Then the fire of the Lord fell down and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. But either way, the point is the same. Lord, do something. Do something powerful and put an end to our dilemma. Change our circumstances. End this exile. Verses 3 and 4, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear, no eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. Whenever there is a request for God's intervention, there is almost always a recollection of his past deeds. And it's true. No one, meaning the other nations, has witnessed such acts as those performed by this God. The words sound fine, but where is their heart? If you were here Wednesday evening, you heard uh, Pastor Ray Johnson emphasize remembering. But the truth here is found in Hosea as he cries in chapter 8. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, for Israel has forgotten his maker. God will remember. They have forgotten him. While Israel had the knowledge of God, while they had a history with God, it made them arrogant and they forgot him. They forgot who he really is. They drifted into idolatry and practiced the abominations of the nations. The words of Paul in Romans 1 would apply here. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images 
resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And Hosea 7, 14 reveals, they do not cry to me from their heart, but they wail upon their beds. In verse 5, and Isaiah continues, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remembered uh, who remember you in their, your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Again, the words are very true. The Lord meets with him who joyfully works righteousness. But these people were far from righteous. In fact, Isaiah starts off his prophecy by noting back in chapter 1, the Lord's charge, our sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. And in Isaiah 46, 12, we read the Lord's words, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. They were anything but righteous. But they were self-righteous. Back in Isaiah 58, we read, starting uh, verse 1, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Such pretense, as if they were righteous. And if we want to consider the heinous depths of depravity to which they had fallen, we can just peek ahead to chapter 65, verse 5, where God castigates them as those who say to him, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are the words of pharisaical self-righteousness. We understand this from the example, that very familiar example given by Jesus in Luke 18, 11, between the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Self-righteous. And while most scholars apply this to their self-righteousness, self-righteous separation from all other people, Old Testament scholar Edward J. Young in his classic commentary goes further and writes, unbelieving Israel no longer desires the nearness of Yahweh. It's God. But in effect is telling him to break the covenant relationship and go back to heaven from whence he came. Israel gives a reason which may be paraphrased, I am holy with respect to thee. And one recoils from the depravity expressed in these words, their idolatrous practices has set them apart from God so that to them he is profane and they are holy. 
and hence unapproachable. In essence, they're saying, I am holy enough and don't need you around here anymore, God. Thank you very much. But now they're in trouble. They're in exile. They must recognize their sin. In the context, the word saved probably speaks of deliverance from exile. But the Lord knows their heart. Jeremiah 2, the Lord exposes such duplicity. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in their time of their trouble, they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in your time of trouble. Moving on, 64 verses 6 and 7, the people acknowledge. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Again, these are proper words of confession, words we all should acknowledge, but with sincerity. Unclean is what the leper was to cry out as he walked about, warning the people of his diseased condition. Deeds like polluted garments, it literally means a woman's menstrual rags. They fade like a leaf and are blown away. The consequences of the life of sin, it dries up life and one is blown away. True words, but here a pretense, a fawning for the heart's intent is to manipulate God into having pity upon their circumstances. There is no plea for forgiveness. It's like the abuser who calls himself a monster but then continues to beat his wife. Verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Here again, they try to smooth things out over with loving words that don't match their actions. In Jeremiah 3, it reads, God said of them, You have the brazen look of a prostitute. You refuse to blush with shame. Have you not just called to me my father, my friend from my youth? Will you always be angry? Will your wrath continue forever? This is how you talk, but you do all the evil you can. Their words are cheap and full of hypocrisy. This is like the abuser claiming, you are my wife, I love you, and he continues to beat her. Jesus addressed the same hypocrisy in Luke 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I tell you? And Jesus charged the religious leaders of his day saying, you are of your father, the devil. Relationship with the holy God while doing what is contrary to his character is a contradiction in terms. The same can be said about the clay and the potter statement. The Lord revealed what they were really doing through Isaiah back in chapter 29, verses 15 and 16. 
where the Lord says, Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, who deeds are in the dark and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? And the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. In those verses, the prophet reveals their foolish behavior. As J. Alec Moiter in his commentary notes that Isaiah exposes their folly. You turn things upside down as a derisive exclamation. They deny the Lord's distinctiveness as if the potter liked the clay. They deny his sovereignty. He did not make us. They deny his wisdom. He knows nothing. Their wickedness had turned everything upside down and backwards. The clay was making the potter into the God they wanted. And then finally in the verses 10 to 12, once again, the shift, they shift responsibility back to God. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The sinful condition of the people also exposes a false approach to the solution to the problem in which the onus for the sinner is taken off from the, the sinner and placed on God. Your holy city, Jerusalem of desolation. This seems to be a prophetic look into the future of destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Babylonians a hundred plus years later. But it's as if to say, look, don't you see what's happening, what this is all leading up to? Are you just going to sit there and do nothing? In verse 12, the same Hebrew word, aphak, restrain yourself, echoes back to 63.50, where he held back his zeal and might. And again, it's as if to say, we are in this situation because of your inactivity and silence. But their memory is selective, and their chosen rebellion madness. Hosea, if we look at Hosea 7, we read, Yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all of this. Verse 13, they have spoken lies against me. Verse 16, they return, but not to the Most High. So we see that even though these words seem sincere, they are not. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Godly sorrow is sincere. It is sorrow for the offense rather than for the punishment. God's law has been infringed and his love abused. This melts the soul in tears. A man may be sorry, yet not repent. A thief is sorry when he is caught, not because he stole, but because he has to pay the penalty. Hypocrites grieve only for the bitter consequences of sin. Their eyes never pour out tears except when God's judgments are approaching. So although these people were going through the motions, saying the right words, it was all an attempt to gaslight God, to change the reality of the situation, minimizing their sin and putting the blame on God's 
inactivity and abandonment. This is why the Lord says in Amos chapter 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Proverbs 14.2 says, He who walks in his uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. Leviticus 26 reminds us that uh, those who abhor God will be abhorred by his very soul. Those who despise God and care not for his love will store up wrath for themselves. Psalm 81.15, those who hate the Lord will pretend obedience to him, and their time of punishment would be forever. Now there is great warning in all of this for us today. First point we need to ask, is my repentance sincere? Do I truly see my sin not just as wrongdoing, but as an offense to a holy God? Jesus proclaimed repentance as part of the gospel in his charge to the disciples, saying, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And Psalm 51.18 states, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. True repentance hates sin. False repentance hates the consequences of sin. When we sin, are we broken? As A.W. Pink speaks of what it is to be broken before a holy God, he says, to, to come to Christ for life is for the sinner to feel and acknowledge that he is utterly destitute of any claim upon God's favor. It's to see himself as without strength, lost and undone. It's to admit that he is deserving of nothing but eternal death, thus taking side with God against himself. It is for him to cast himself into the dust before God and humbly sue for divine mercy. The more bitterness we taste in sin, the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. Is that how we feel about our sin? While we as believers in Christ have, the, have that blessed assurance of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, let's not take it for granted. We are still called to live a holy life. Just three verses back in 1 John 1.6, we are told, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You cannot practice and condone your sin and worship the idols of your heart and think you have repented. You can't be living together outside of marriage, viewing pornography, gossiping and backbiting, 
having money as your master and think that you can have fellowship with Christ at the same time? True repentance is a gift of God and is a necessary component of our daily sanctification, which is to make us more like Christ every day. Second question, is our worship truly worthy? As one writer put it, true worship, in other words, is defined by the priority we pray, place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. True worship is a matter of the heart expressed through a lifestyle of holiness. Thus, if your lifestyle does not express the beauty of holiness through an extravagant or ex exaggerated love for God, you who do not live in extreme or excessive submission to God, then it's not worship. The ancient Jews of Israel and Judah uh, took comfort in their heritage and ceremonies of worship, whether to the true God or to the idols. But for all their ceremony, their worship was dead and in vain. Worship is not to be confined to one hour on Sunday, but it should encompass our whole lives. This is a great reminder to take a step back from all the activity and the noise and realize it is easy to lose focus of what and who we really matters. We can sing our songs, say our prayers, amen through every sermon, and when it's all said and done, never really put into practice the things we've just heard and declared. A.W. Tozer said it best when he said, Christians don't tell lies. They just go to church and sing them. We sing, oh, for a thousand tongues I sing my great Redeemer's praise. And yet we stand there mute, not even using the one tongue we have. We sing, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, and we've never prayed longer than 10 minutes in our life. Folks, a, a good hymn or song is good theology set to music. And we must ask ourselves, do we believe it? If not, it's hypocrisy. Do we speak of hope but ignore the hopeless? We sing about healing but never reach out our hands to the sick. We ask God to give us the nations, but we don't speak out against racial injustice in our own communities. There is such a thing as worthless worship. It is worship that has words but no action. It is a worship that has sound but no heart. And Jesus defined it in Mark 7 when he quoted the prophet Isaiah. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship in me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Let that not be said of us. Don't try to gaslight God by our ceremonies, by doing church thinking we can change the reality and have him see us differently than whom we really are. It didn't work back then. It won't work now. As we saw, Israel and Judah forgot God and they suffered the consequences. Rather, consider what John Piper said. True worship is a valuing or treasuring of God above all things. Right worship, good worship, pleasing worship depends on the right mental grasp of the way God really is. It is so true. But Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also.
Do you treasure God? Is your heart in the worship? When we consider all that Christ has done for us, as undeserving as we are, our hearts should be filled to overflowing with gratitude. A shared gratitude. That's why we gather together. As Horatio Spafford so eloquently penned those words, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. That's worship. Let us all evaluate our expressions of worship so that through singing, declaring, giving, doing, we will give the Lord the, gl the glory he deserves. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, we pray that your spirit <clears throat> would have its way in us. Help us to examine ourselves, look a, take an honest look at our heart and what we're doing. And may indeed our repentance be sincere and our worship be worthy. We'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.